0: The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of
1: humanity. This
0: must stop now. Extinction! Yeah! Extinction! Yeah! Yeah! Civil disobedience. Non violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel.
1: Scientific realism has to win. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction
0: Rebellion. Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. This is Jessica Townsend, and today I'm lucky enough to be talking to Amitabh Ghosh, who is in the States in Philadelphia. Welcome, Amitabh.
1: Thank you, Jessica. It's it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, I... Love your new book. Then that makes curse parables for a planet in crisis. Last time we spoke, we talked about the Great Derangement. That also is a fantastic book, but it that is in strands, and this new book is um, feels like a very integrated whole it was quite hard actually in sometimes to kind of pull the questions out because it's woven so beautifully together what was your project when you decided to start writing
1: well thank you first of all uh, for reading it with such attention that's really gratifying for me you know to know that it's resonated with you uh, so powerfully you know, a lot of these ideas had been in my head, uh, you know, since about the time that I wrote uh, The Great Derangement, which was around uh, 2015. And soon after I'd finished with The Great Derangement, I happened to travel to Indonesia and to the Banda Islands. And uh, at the time, I had no conscious plan of writing a, a book around it. But, uh, you know, the islands left a very powerful impression on me.
0: It's a bit of a regret to me because there are many beautiful things about the nutmegs that you draw out, both the shape and the size of them and also the story (laughs) the story of how you research what happened and you're sticking this um old text into google translate (laughs) to try and work out what's going on you could maybe give us a little flavor of that so you went to the banda islands and then what happened
1: Well, at the time when I went to the Banda Islands, I had only a very sort of vague idea of what had happened there. But once I was there, just uh, interacting with the islanders and reading about the island, uh, I learnt about this history. And it's really a kind of horrifying story that has been completely erased from, uh, from modern memory, you know. And for me, then, the nutmeg became, if you like, a kind of, uh, well, a parable, if you like, uh, about, uh, about modern times. Because what happened on the Banda Islands was that the Banda Islands uh, were the world's center of the nutmeg trade. Uh, nutmegs only grew in and around the islands, uh, you know. And the nutmeg tree produces both nutmegs as well as mace. And these were, you know, in ancient times, and in medieval times, uh, two of the most important commodities, the most expensive commodities known to human beings. Uh, and they had spread across the so-called known world uh, very early, you know, I mean, so uh, uh, really uh, long uh, before the Common Era, we have nutmeg circulating in Italy, uh, in, um, uh, in the Mediterranean region, in Africa, in China, in India, and so on. And uh, because they were so valuable, you know, at a certain point, people, especially uh, in England, in Elizabethan England, uh, came to believe that nutmegs were a cure for the plague. Ah. So, yes, so the value of the nutmeg suddenly just shot up. And, you know, it uh, it reached a point where uh, a handful of nutmeg, uh, could buy you a house uh, in Europe.
0: <laughs> so it's a little bit like uh, the tulips, which I guess yes. were, later, were later were later on. Right. So what is the curse?
1: So what happened? You know, is that in the 16th century, Europeans reached the Banda Islands and they tried very hard to impose a monopoly uh, on the nutmeg trade, and then uh, you know uh, the islanders resisted. And in the 17th century, in 1621, the Dutch led a fleet to the uh, the Banda Islands, and they essentially eliminated the entire population of the islands. You know, they murdered thousands, uh, they starved thousands to death, and, uh, you know, the rest were enslaved. Uh, A few escaped. So, in in effect, what happened is that this amazing tree, uh, which came with the ecology of the island... Uh, this great tree of life for the islanders, which had made them prosperous and wealthy uh, for, you know, at least a thousand years, uh, ultimately led to their, to their complete elimination. And so what they were facing was a very early example of what's now known as the resource curse, uh, you know, when something very valuable comes to you from the land and ultimately uh, it leads to a complete blight. And I think the resource curse is, in effect, uh, the condition of our contemporary humanity.
0: Yeah, that comes across very powerfully in the book. And I think that one of the strong things about reading it is that you use quite gentle language. It would be possible to write this in a very angry way, Mm. but you don't have to because the facts are so strong Mm. that just laying them out has quite a strong emotional effect. So, yes, I think that was a very interesting choice that you made there. And you then compared what had happened on the Banda Islands Um, in the Indian Ocean to what happened in America on a larger scale?
1: It's not so much uh, to compare as to connect, uh, you know, the Banda Islands and uh, let's say uh, Northeast America, especially the region around around Connecticut, were the two farthest poles of the two dominant empires of the period, which is the Dutch Empire Uh, and the emerging British Empire. So, the first British colonial possession, for example, uh, in Asia was actually in the Banda Islands, a tiny island called Roon. And uh, at the same time, uh, the Dutch and the British were fighting these genocidal wars uh, in uh, the region around New York and Connecticut. Uh, These wars are completely, more or less, forgotten now. Uh, by most people. But, uh, you know, these wars were also really formative, uh, both for the empires and for the period. So I think what happened in the Banda Islands is actually directly connected to what, what was then happening uh, in the Americas. Uh, because really, ever after uh, the European uh, so, so-called discovery of the Americas, uh, what we see is a, is an outbreak of Uh, Violence on a scale, I think, previously unknown to human beings.
0: Yes, and the way that you describe it, it becomes a kind of given. It sits behind the ideas of colonialism, which would have been um, couched in Christian idealism. And I don't think many of the people were self conscious exterminators, but in effect, it was a war of extermination that was going on.
1: Yeah, in that period, they were actually exterminating, but I don't think they used the word extermination quite so much. But by the 19th century, within the European consciousness, and especially within the English language, wars of extermination were just taken for granted. It was just taken for granted, uh, you know, within 19th century Victorian culture, that uh, Europeans had a right to exterminate uh, whoever they wanted.
0: Mm. You talk about the way the nutmeg kind of lost a sense of meaning. Mm. So the islands had a sort of mythology and some storytelling around it. But when it becomes commodified, it becomes sort of flattened and less rich and that seems to be a big metaphor for what happens right across what we call capitalism but which you see is going much further back.
1: Yes I think it really starts I mean this whole way of looking at the world and looking at the gifts of the earth if you like as dead things, as inert matter that exists only uh, to be exploited by humans. And uh, let's not forget, not all humans, uh, but certain humans, essentially uh, uh, white Western men, uh, you know, uh, it's a uh, white elite Western men, I should say, because, uh, you know, uh, European peasants certainly weren't going to be exploiting things in quite the same way. Hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think this kind of... Uh, this kind of worldview enters uh, the modern consciousness really at about this time, the 17th century. And I think it emerges completely out of the violence between human beings. It's the violence between uh, this uh, this extraordinary, unprecedented violence that you see occurring, especially in the Americas, where not only are native populations being, uh, um, are being uh, decimated, uh, but also, you know, there's this in, uh, this really actually stupefying project of, uh, on the one hand, uh, you kill off the, pop- the native populations of the Americas and then you replace them uh, with uh, uh, with Africans, uh, with enslaved Africans. You know, if you just think about the enormity of what is what is occurring, then, I mean, it's really staggering. You know, I mean, you depopulate a continent and then repopulate it. All for the benefit of, uh, you know, some, uh, some elite uh, Westerners. Uh, so, yes, I think what happens in this, uh, in this period is a profound loss of meaning. You know, you just take the nutmeg. The nutmeg grew on these tiny islands. Uh, there was a whole sort of world of song and story and meaning uh, around the nutmeg and around the volcano, you know, which gave birth to the nutmeg. Uh, and the, you know there was a mythology around it, there were stories around it, so it was just uh, you know it was much more than a resource. It was literally a gift of the earth, which was celebrated by human beings and you know j- just think about this extraordinary thing for at least for around two millenniums. Uh, uh, traders and merchants were traveling all the way across the Indian Ocean uh, to this remote uh, uh, archipelago, the Banda Islands, uh, in order to trade in nutmegs. Now, they were living there. You know, some of them spent uh, long periods of time there. Uh, They saw how how nutmegs were farmed and so on, and they could have easily taken uh, nutmeg trees back with them. But they never did. Uh, you know, they were content to uh, travel across the sea, because for them, uh, a nutmeg wasn't just a resource. A nutmeg was something that was profoundly connected with the earth and with the earth of the Banda Islands. So a real nutmeg wasn't a nutmeg unless it was from the Bandas. And then from the 17th century onwards, once you have the European colonial incursion there, the nutmeg becomes a meaningless thing uh, which is actually transported across the earth and grown in vast quantities then in barbados uh, barbados is today called the nutmeg island uh, connecticut is called the nutmeg state uh, i mean these things are so kind of uh, you know resonant if you like with uh, these uh, macabre forms of uh, symbolism you know so you know to uh, to cut a long story short you know what i say very often to young uh, to young activists today and i was just meeting with some uh, young degrowth uh, with a young degrowth activist here in philadelphia uh, you know it is so important for us if we are going to part company with that way of looking at things on this earth we have to do it through the medium of stories, of rituals, of ceremonies. And everywhere uh, everywhere we look, when we think today of those kinds of activist movements, which have actually been successful to some degree, those are the movements that have actually tried to restore meaning, you know, to what they're trying to protect. So you take the Standing Rock protests, you know, uh we you know the standing rock protests actually survived uh, over a long period uh in the face of really kind of uh, incredible violence uh, violence of the kind uh, that that goes back to the 17th century when they were attacked with dogs and uh, and armaments and in, and even in uh, even with drones uh but they held their ground and what was responsible for that was i think in the end uh, that uh, It wasn't just a a political movement. It was much more than that. Uh, People who participated in it talk about all the rituals they invented uh, the ways in which they connected with the sacredness of the earth Uh, there were all these ceremonies that they performed collectively i think one of the really terrible things that that's happened with capitalist modernity is that it's persuaded us that stories rituals ceremonies all these things which uh, you know uh, 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 which we've come to discount uh, within capitalist modernity. Uh, you know, they've persuaded us that these things are unimportant, but they are not. Mm. They are profoundly
0: important. I love that. I so. yeah. Civil disobedience. non This is a moment of choice. Extinction rebellion. It's very interesting what you say. A friend of mine who is writing a paper on what uh, some people have called Witiko, but which he calls this Western grasping disease. Mm. He calls it that because he's a Buddhist. Mm. He is thinking that we need to, just as you are sort of foregrounding, think of some practices a bit like Joanna Macy started, you know, 40 years ago, Um to try and find where that is in us because we're not separate from this problem we're swimming mm. in those polluted waters it's part of the way our neurons fire and we've got to find stories and ways of finding it within ourselves but also moving forward with it and I think you are right, we're only at the edge of it, aren't we, really? At the end of the book, you say, how can we tell stories which bring other species in? Mm. And there aren't all that many ways. There begins to be some ways of that. What what, what are your thoughts on that now, Amitabh? And it is all probably for you a little while ago that you wrote the book, although it's very live for me.
1: <laughs> yes, I do think that the fundamental problem that uh, uh, that we face today, the fundamental challenge uh, that writers face today uh, is to give voice to uh, the non-human, you know, the the non-human elements that are all around us. You know, The thing that has gone profoundly wrong is that in our interactions with non-human entities, we've just assumed that, uh, you know, this basic idea that comes to us from uh, Descartes and so on, uh, that these entities are inert and that they're dead. You know, if you just consider that in relation to fossil fuels, You know, the sort of illusion that people have is that fossil fuels are just an inert entity, that uh, entities that produce uh, energy, you know, that they're tools. Hence, we can just easily replace the tools with other tools, you know, being uh, alternative energy. But the more we look at fossil fuels, the clearer it becomes that we have become their tools. You know, they have enmeshed themselves in human life in such profound ways that actually... Uh, it's very hard to think of how you escape from the from the mortal coils of this uh, uh, of this kind of energy. So I think it's very very important for us to try and understand actually the enormity of the non-human world, how this non-human world has enmeshed us in so many ways, uh, precisely at the time when uh, you know. Uh, Western philosophers especially began to think of human beings as being completely independent uh, of so-called nature uh, and of the environment. So, I think a huge burden rests upon us as storytellers to try and find uh, you know, those non-human voices. And I can tell you that as someone who's been struggling with this for a long time, I realize that to do this is to marginalize yourself. Uh, within, uh, you know, the artistic and literary communities that you and I belong to, uh, you know. Because in order to connect with the non-human, you have to let go uh, of of what you might call a, a kind of bourgeois seriousness. You know, you have to accept the idea that these entities are there, that they speak, that they have agentiality, uh, that they have uh, intention, and uh, that they're capable of creating meaning. And as soon as you do that, you profoundly break uh, with the fundamental conceptions that underlie Uh, contemporary thought you know.
0: I love what you said about fossil fuels being a sort of monster that's enmeshed inside our societies because I've been trying to work out how we get fossil fuels out of our lives and out of our societies and I found your chapter on the treated fossil fuels as power and energy extremely interesting because you also talked not just about the energy it gives us as a society but the power that it gives to the elites in our mm. society would you talk us through that a little bit sure
1: i mean this i quoted andreas malm at some length there and I, I, you must know that andreas malm is a sort of activist and he's written a book about uh, you know where he sort of recommends uh, blowing up fossil fuel infrastructure, and so.
0: On. I know we've had so many debates in XR yeah. about it. You know because we're non-violent, and yeah. uh, it's like where is the line? But yes.
1: Yeah, but he's also a kind of uh, very orthodox Marxist, and so on. So he would completely disagree with my with my views. I think uh, because my views are, n- are not of that uh, you know of that ilk at all. Uh, but. Look, you know, if you consider really the ways in which fossil fuels have enmeshed themselves in our lives, you know, the blinding of uh, people today to the power of fossil fuels is partly also the blinding of people to the powers of other human beings. So I can tell you, you know, I did my uh, my PhD on the Middle East, you know, uh, at Oxford in, uh, in anthropology many, many years ago. And at that time... If you had suggested to anybody, uh, any of my supervisors or any of the people who were producing sort of discourses on the Middle East, if you had said to them that within 30 years, uh, the United Arab Emirates are going to become uh, one of the most powerful geopolitical players in the world, people would have laughed at you, you know. If you had said to them that uh, Saudi and Emirati diplomats are going to become the most skilled and the most successful diplomats in the world, they would have laughed at you yet that is exactly what has happened. So, you see, that kind of racism also blinds people to the ways in which fossil fuels uh, empower human beings. Because you look today, two of the biggest geopolitical players in the world are the United uh, Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. I mean, in every conflict that you see uh, across Eurasia, they have a finger in the pie, you know, whether it be Syria or Afghanistan or wherever. And, we have to accept that they've become incredibly skilled. Nobody can uh, manipulate the, uh, the elites of the Anglosphere more effectively than Saudi and Emirati diplomats. I mean, they have your British uh, elites completely in their hands. <laughs> they have American elites completely in their hands. Can you imagine to the point where, after 9-11, uh, the Bush administration provided them with a plane to carry Saudis away from America. I mean, it's wow. astonishing, but it's not just the elites. Uh, these these uh, these players have today become the most powerful uh, players also within the arts world. Qatar uh, the, has become the largest buyer of uh, of art in the world. Uh, the United Arab Emirates has every major uh, museum. Uh, you know, uh, has set up subsidiaries there. You know, whether it's the Louvre or or whatever, MoMA. uh, So, every artist is just falling over themselves to uh, sell something to Qatar. Uh, The Sharjah book fair has become one of the largest book fairs in the world. So, uh, you know, let us not deceive ourselves, you know. What we are facing through the power of fossil fuels is, it's not just energy, it's geopolitical power, uh, it's the power of emergent elites, and do you think that the Saudis and the Emiratis are going to go down without a in protecting uh, fossil fuels? I mean, if you think so, then you're just deluding yourself. These, uh, these players are incredibly powerful. They've managed to hold up the IPCC reports for years. Uh, you know, so, you know, we are in many ways just deceiving ourselves in thinking that it's just about fossil fuels. It's not. It's about the ways in which fossil fuels have enmeshed themselves, octopus-like, with modernity. Thanks,
0: I really liked your idea looking forward, which was maybe instead of doing a COP process, something like a limited test ban treaty might be a way forward where we get people to sign up and to agree in, I suppose, quite a hard line kind of way to start cutting down the emissions, because the process that we've got going on at the moment, I don't know about you, but I was very depressed at the end of last year when the COP Hmm. failed so miserably.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, let's just face it. I mean, COP has absolutely failed. You know, what has actually happened uh, is that... uh, all those things that we used to think of as global governance have essentially collapsed. I mean, how can Britain and, uh, and the United States constantly threaten and sanction China uh, and Russia and expect them to go along uh, with uh, these uh, uh, with these other processes? What we are essentially seeing is a breakdown uh, of the, geo- uh, the geopolitical order uh, on a profound scale. So, and I think the failure of uh, uh, you know COP26 is just one more sign of that.
0: That takes me from that sort of macro scale down to a micro mm. scale. One of the most moving things I think about the book was when you noticed that although it wasn't getting into reports, you thought you saw Bangladeshi faces mm. in the pictures of immigrants sailing across oceans and you decided to seek some out and to find out what their stories were mm. and if they were already being affected by climate change. Would you mind telling us about that?
1: Sure. So the, what happened is that, uh, you know, starting around, uh, around about 2012 or something, uh, you know, the, when the so-called uh, uh, migration crisis started, I became very interested in this phenomenon, you know, because I'm myself a migrant and have, uh, you know, spent my my family's, my family has been migrants for generations, you know. Uh, Also, also our roots are in Bangladesh. So, I became very interested in this phenomenon and I certainly noticed that a very large number uh, of the migrants who were crossing the Mediterranean in really dangerous ways, Uh, were actually South Asians, and many of them are actually Bangladeshis. So, you know, this is a kind of puzzling thing, because Bangladesh is actually a kind of success story. Uh, It has, uh, uh, its economy is growing very fast. Uh, It's, uh, in all uh, sort of economic indicators, it's overtaken India. So, I became kind of curious and wanted to find out, you know, what's going on. So, I, I went uh, around Italy, and I interviewed a lot of Bengali migrants. And the picture that emerged is actually quite different from that which I had uh, expected. So, you know, yes, many of these migrants have been very adversely affected by, uh, by climate change. Uh, but none of them uh, would uh, describe themselves as uh, environmental refugees or environmental migrants or climate migrants. Uh, because they all uh, conceive of their journeys as having been sparked off by many, many factors. You know, uh, political turmoil, um, often uh, religious difficulties, economic uh, pressures, but uh, also often family pressures and so on. So it's a it's a very com- complicated picture, but. I think one aspect of it which uh, people don't sufficiently take into account is actually communications technology, you know, cell phones. Uh, cell phones are a very, very important part of, of, of these migration, migratory mm-hmm. movements. Uh, every, every part of the migratory movement is actually powered uh, by cell phone technology. Uh, you know, beginning with paying the traffickers.
0: Yeah, and and also with the interim payments, because from your description. Many of them paid a down payment, but were then forced to get their families to send further money in order for them to continue the journey. That was part of the sort of normal story, which is quite horrifying. And without the banking that's associated with phones and the communications, that wouldn't have been possible.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's the phones that make them possible. But, you know... It's actually much deeper than that. I mean, it's the phone uh, that really actually leads them to even conceive of the journey, mm. uh, uh, you know, because you think of a poor kid in, ba- in Bangladesh, you know, he's, he's working on his father's rice farm and, you know, planting rice and so on is, a, it, I mean, it's incredibly laborious and it's incredibly difficult and strenuous. Uh, and he does that all day long, sitting, uh, you know, under the hot sun. At the same time, there are all these climatic disruptions, so so they don't really know when to plant and so on. At the same time, they have, uh, they all have cell phones because uh, smartphones are cheap and easily available uh, across the Indian subcontinent now. Uh, so on this uh, on the cell phone, uh, he's constantly seeing images on WhatsApp or uh, you know on, on other social media. Uh, of their cousins and relatives, uh, you know, who are in, let's say, Italy, who've successfully made that journey uh, uh, and who send them images of themselves standing beside, you know, beside fancy cars or, you know, near some uh, big restaurant or something. And they they see these glamorous images and it gives birth, uh, you know, to the desire to leave. So, you know, what I uh, would say is that, you know, to think of, Climate-causing migration, Uh, you know, it's one way to think about uh, migration. And obviously, many people who are losing their lands to the rising seas and so on are actually climate migrants in that simple sense. But many of those who are moving are not, uh, uh, you know, in any simple sense, climate migrants. Mm. Uh, I would rather say that this migratory movement is actually an effect of the same thing that causes climate change. Which is uh, increasing acceleration, uh, you know, in production, uh, consumption, and communication. So all of this is actually behind uh, this phenomenon of increased migration, and you know, th- th- this phenomenon carries some very dire p- portents for the world. You know, I mean, you look at uh, you look at Britain. I mean, essentially. Uh, Brexit, this incredible force for destabilization, you know, came about because of migration, you know, and we see, I mean, the Trump phenomenon was also tied in many ways to to migration in the United States. Actually, the number of people who cross these borders is tiny, you know. But yet in the public imagination, it becomes a vast a sort of terrifying thing, you know.
0: Yeah, we um, so we've had Brexit in the UK and now many of the people who are involved in Brexit, the hard right, yeah. the hardest part of it, are now turning their eyes upon our carbon net zero plans, fighting very hard against those ideas and they're also using the fact that we have a energy crisis at the moment and trying to blame it on the small amount of green taxes that are are put on people. So it's quite interesting. It's not just false fears of immigration. And of course, I mean, if we don't do anything about the climate, we are going to begin to get Mm. massive uh, migratory problems because of the effects but as your bangladeshi interviewees said the climate crisis it isn't just one thing yeah. is it we have a crisis on many different fronts and the climate is part of that and a symptom of it but it's it's almost you talk about um Colonialism, kind of leading to a kind of omnicide, and mm. it's almost like we have an omnicrisis crisis yeah. as well. It's it's in so many different areas, and it's that makes it incredibly complex and difficult to know where to begin. Unless we do end up with some sort of, you know, societal breakdown and have to put it together. None of us wish for that, but it's quite hard to find a way through. What gives you hope in these days? Uh,
1: Look, uh, 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 one can't be Pollyanna-ish right now, you know, I mean, because things are actually much worse than they seem even. It seems perfectly clear to me that we are heading for societal breakdown. I see clear signs of that in India and in the United States, you know, which has become so polarized that actually nothing gets done anymore. Hmm. So you do see these problems all around you and they're getting worse and worse. The thing that gives me ho- you know I is young people, uh, you know <laughs> the young people that you work with. Every time I speak to them, I you know or have any interaction with them, I I come away uh, you know feeling a little more optimistic than I would otherwise. And I think I think one of the things that sustains them is that they understand also that that in the face of this vast uh, horror that uh, that is advancing towards us, on the one hand we have to do what we can about those ma- uh, macro things, but on the other hand we also have to find our own satisfactions in uh, living our lives as we choose, in uh, you know sharing and caring for others uh, within small communities. So we have to find uh, you know these are these compensations, that is, uh, friends, family, community, and uh, the mutual kind of caring and sharing that uh, the, uh, that human beings have always done. I think those things are very important, you know. Only if we pay attention to those micro things will we be able to carry on confronting the macro uh, challenges.
0: Actually, to end, I think that that's what you do in the book, because you do look at some planetary horrors and I haven't mm. been able to do justice to all the things that you cover in the book I I love what you say about terraforming but that we'll have to talk about that another mm. time yes. um, but one of the wonderful things about the book is you have some storytelling aspects particularly around the nutmeg you look at geopolitics and macro problems and as you are writing the book there's a sense of you sitting in brooklyn alone because your wife has mm. gone to look after her family and outside covid is happening but also the black lives protest so there is a very nice personal tone to the book these many layers which give a idea of a crisis and things going on which have a human scale as well. There, there's you as the human being, as the writer, maybe not always at the centre, but, uh, you you know, connecting these things. And it gives the book a great humanity. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for your very generous words. Thank you.
0: The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Let's so. yeah. Let's so. yeah. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We we're going to rebel.
1: Scientific realism has to win. Extinction, Extinction rebellion. rebellion. Extinction rebellion.
0: Extinction mm-hmm. rebellion.